dive right into this. Good morning, Jeremy Smith out in Oakland. What's up? Not much. How are you doing this? Well, it's evening. You've got beer. Yeah, you've got coffee. I've got beer. That's like <laughs> that's like yin yang. How's your evening, Lauren Yates? It's good. I've had like a really good day, really productive day. Um, you know, feels good when you have a productive day. It's like a it's like a five minute feel good, and then your brain starts going like, okay, what do I have to do next? But um, <laughs> how are you doing? What's going on in Oakland right now? It's raining and cold. Well, Winter. cold for Oakland. Wintery. Wintery. Are you guys like locked We've got, down right now? Yeah, well, the state is reopening. We could be open, but because ICUs are still full and we've got a new um, a new mutation of the virus kicking around California, we've opted to keep our stores closed and online only for the safety of ourselves and our customers. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, the, the full restrictions ended on Monday. So if you did want to go and eat around other people right now, you could. Yeah, I'm not going to read into this, but I found it very interesting that since since like Biden has become president, a lot of the blue states are like easing restrictions, which I'm just I'm not going down that. I'm just observing. Yeah. That's all I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, there was just it's just triggers. There's um, numbers that we had to hit as a state for infection rate. And the timing of Biden becoming president is, um, you know, 20 days after the worst holiday for gatherings. And oh, so yeah. you're going to see the curve drop in in sync with that. Well, I really just hope that's numbers. the case. Yeah, I hope that's the case that the curve is dropping. It, here in Thailand, we had like another spike um, around the same time as you guys. And um, it was from um, Burma, a lot of like undocumented Burmese migrant workers um, in a, a major fish market um, just south of Bangkok um, and you know our neighbor Burma is having like a really hard time of of the the virus right now and um, yeah I mean that was these things are bound to happen but we're at the other end of the curve as well so things are looking up somehow. yeah I think things are we're accelerating vaccines. I think yeah. things are going to go a lot better this year. You know, it won't be March, but maybe it'll be June and we'll be, you know, vaccinated and out and about. Can I ask you what's like on the, that poster behind you? Large fancy room filled with crap. I love it. I picked that up at the Hammer Museum in L.A. It's um, David Shrigley. Beautiful. And uh, no, I miss museums too. Mm. Not set foot in an art. Well, no, I went to. We briefly had a minute in 2020 where art museums were open again, that reduced capacity. But if you're in next time you're in LA, you should go to the Hammer. It's excellent. Yeah, I can't wait. My, I was supposed to go to LA in in January, but my flights got cancelled for obvious reasons. Um, but anyway, I want to introduce the theme to this um, podcast, this this episode, because we've been talking on 
on chats and um, about camos and uniforms and I guess like we both have this fascination with uniforms for maybe different, maybe similar reasons and I wanted to dive in to explore that a little bit um, today. Um, For folks listening, Jeremy is um, co-founder of Standard and Strange, a beautiful store in Oakland, um, you know, retailing just really solid, beautiful men's um, denims and um, leather pieces, you know, like just beautiful garments and things made with love and care and beauty um, for men, mainly for men. Um, So, Jeremy, like, do you want to, like, start off? I think, yeah, we, we might kick off with, like, our favorite uh, military pieces that we own, vintage military pieces that we own. Okay, I think mine is a bit predictable, but that's until I get my hands in an earlier field jacket. But I have a original, well, can't really see it, but I have a first model M65, which I think is the superior edition because if you go on the shoulders here, no epaulets. I find the fit is slightly better, and that could just be a contract-to-contract difference. The amazing thing about this piece, um, actually the label is torn out, so I can't pull the contract on it, but this particular one I picked up on eBay for $23. That's a score. That's the best part of digging, in my opinion. (laughs) And a big shout-out to Matt Smith, who's Rebels and Rogues on Instagram, for alerting me to this deal. That's that's how, uh, that's so nice about the internet community, like people sharing stuff like that. Um, how long ago did you grab that, pick up that um, M65? Oh, it's that's been over bad. a year, I think. Nice. It was sometime in the last, time has no meaning, Lauren. Time has um, no meaning. There is no such a, thing as time. It's a construct. It is. It was previous to today that I picked this up and... I, had, I actually already have one. I have the real McCoy's first model, M65. And I've been looking around for the original, and this one just popped up. Mm. And one of the things about the M65 that attracts me is it's the first military use of Velcro. So both, there's a little closure. It's actually hard to see, but If you could describe collar, it for people, that would be Yeah. Great. So there's a the collar closure that pulls pulls a collar closed around your your neck and holds the hood in place when you unzip it is Velcro. And then also on the sleeve ends, there's Velcro instead of buttons or snaps. That's the first field jacket to have Velcro on it. So it's a pretty big evolution. Yeah. And definitely like very necessary. Can you imagine being in combat and just having to like undo a button just mid yeah, button. while betting getting shot at you know and in gloves your yeah. hands are free you know, your hands are either freezing or in gloves and yes that, that was a big big innovation and the other thing that's interesting about it is they have these triangle pieces that pull out of the sleeve so it just goes like that mm-hmm. and that snaps into or actually velcros into your gloves to give you a little bit more barrier from radioactive fallout so it's sort of the first uh, fully released, you know, wide, wide release military jacket that encapsulates nuclear anxiety. 
can you tell us like what period, what time period this, even though time is is a construct, let's just say, yeah. um, what time period, what era this um, jacket hails from? Uh, M65 started in the 60s. It was the follow-up to the M51 field jacket, which came out of, I think, I want to say, I don't want to get it wrong because everyone listening is probably more detail-oriented than me. Let's but I just believe it's say, the M4. let's just say, you know, that like, okay, we are not like encyclopedias and we're just having this conversation for the sake of like yeah. the beauty of the evolution of of you know military outerwear and uniforms but if anyone wants to correct jeremy that's fine you can put it in the comments just don't be hateful just you know <laughs> we're just people yeah i think there's that well so we'll say the there was a world war ii field jacket there was a cotton poplin there was the m43 and that kept evolving and getting longer through the m51 into the m65 and i think the other significant piece of evolution was the transition to a to a blend of nylon and cotton for durability and quick dry and you know a bunch of other features and you get light, when you move away from all yeah lightweight you know cotton gets really heavy you look at like these you know especially these european world war ii pieces um the the cotton canvases get so so heavy i mean the germans the world war ii german pieces were a lot of blends of like linens linen blends but but really like the nylon adding nylon as a technical fabric to military garments was like probably one of the biggest game changers of you know of technical wear for sure and that's kind of continued through we're going to probably talk about this soon what but you brought up in our little chats before the the podcast that you know a lot of the outerwear gear that we see today, you know, it's mostly based on military innovation, uh, which is why we're having this conversation about uniforms. Um, I wanted to like get into, you know, why we why we as people are drawn to specifically you and I, but I think a lot of people listening might be able to relate. Is like why we're drawn to uniforms particularly uh, what what draws us to them um, and you know how that kind of seeped out into contemporary culture later on in the years but I think your point about the M65 um, I think you told me earlier as being kind of one of the first jackets to kind of be in surplus was a big kind of game changer as mm -hmm. well do you want to talk about that a little bit yeah i think the vietnam war era korea late korea and vietnam war era garments there were just so many mm. and you know world war ii people were smaller and we were sending much smaller humans into war basically children um, and as you get into korea and vietnam you've got much larger men going into combat and then on top of that you just have significantly more pieces being made as we're not there's the supply chains were deeper you know things were there's no rationing during during vietnam in the u.s we're able to, we were able to make a surplus of garments meaning you know post-war not just garments but um 
artillery as well. I, this is such a timely thing because I've just been doing research for Spring Summer 22 and we're doing a lot based on Vietnam again because I, I keep coming back to Vietnam. There's something I'm not done with it. I probably won't be done with it for a long time. But um, I was reading an article, um, an interview of a Thai soldier who fought for Thai, like he was uh, what they called one of the Queen's Cobras. Um, and he was sent to Vietnam to fight to help the South Vietnamese. And he was explaining how wasteful, just from the Thai perspective uh, on the American, um, you know, allied forces, how wasteful they were because um, something like, I I don't want to get this wrong, but something like every three or six months, um, rifles, every single rifle um, was basically all guns all artillery was changed swapped out for new ones and the old ones were just discarded and ended up that the north vietnamese would scavenge and use all this um you know discarded um artillery and it was it was a policy of the i guess the u.s military that this was the case but for like for a thai um for a Thai Queen's Cobra, this was just like crazy to see. I That's, that yeah, I, I never really think about the hardware. I'm just textile yeah, obsessed. Totally. I think when I was a teenager and preteen, I used to read more books about war and more about the artillery stuff, but that was a number of years ago that we won't discuss. There's um, something, yeah, there's something creepy about like being really into stuff that hurts people for sure but i just found that fascinating i also had no idea that um in during the vietnam war thailand was probably the third um, provider of ground forces to the um vietnam war there's something like forty thousand thai military personnel in vietnam which which is something that is definitely forgotten about and not talked about at all. So they were third next to, obviously, the U.S. was first and the South Koreans were the second biggest provider of military forces. Fascinating. That's amazing and fascinating. Yes. Yes. I feel like there's, you know, when you look at histories of war, and I mean, stepping back from just war, but... If you are an American looking to read about Asian history, any Asian history, it's so much white guys writing about stuff. And it would be incredible to see more translated personal histories, oral histories from people who actually live in these countries. Well, honestly, I think the only reason why I've come across this is because I'm researching the Vietnam War from Thailand. So basically, whatever I'm, it doesn't matter if I'm going to a library or searching on the internet, I'm more likely to get Thai, like local hits, um, local articles and local points of views that come in the mix, which I never would have found, you know, beforehand when I was living overseas. So, you know, always new perspectives. It's fascinating. All these like individual stories, you know, 
all these people who yeah. have their like there there were just so many people basically that were tangled in the Vietnam War involuntarily invo- and involuntarily um, that there are just so many just heart opening stories to read about folks you could never like for anyone who says that they are bored in the lockdown i find that impossible to believe because there are an infinite pool of stories to real stories to read about and listen to but i want to show you my i want to show you my piece yes that my face. Are these the like, monkey pants? Yeah, yeah, these are the monkey pants. This is like my score of 2020, really. So these are, for folks just listening, these are my World War II monkey pants in exactly my size, um, which is also a very rare thing for me to come across. First of all, if you're not into military stuff, that's okay. Um, like, basically, monkey pants are very sought upon sought after i mean and they're a hbt which is um basically a herringbone twill um fabric with a giant pocket on the butt and two two pockets on each side on on the front and these I bought for the equivalent of 60 US dollars on Facebook Marketplace here locally in Thailand. Um, You know, they're such beautiful pants, you know, like a lot of the buttons are rusted. The buttons are, the the original buttons probably rusted off. So they've been patched with new little squares. um, Wonderful. On the fronts and the open face um, buttons on the fly are still intact, but very rusted. They say U.S. Marine Corps. Um, yeah, stunning pants. These probably, you know, vintage dealers would probably sell this these pair this pair for upwards of seven hundred euros. Um, that's probably the going rate for them now. But a small size like this that fits me, maybe more. Who knows? But it's not really about the the amount of money they're worth. It's more about to me. It's about like the the hunt. You know, I'm looking like every day. It's like a real sickness. I don't know about you, Jeremy, but I am. Yeah, like, I. <laughs> do you have this? I'm sickness? on a timeout, right? Yeah, my <laughs> I'm space constrained, so right now I'm on a little timeout from hunting too much. But sometimes things will just pop up and. I do have the things I want. You know, I want a lot of the same things everyone does. Frog skins, vine leaf, Mitchell, all that, you know, in-country tailor-made stuff. But every so often, something wild and just unexpected comes up. And that's I the, follow... That's when it's special, you know, when they're so, a bit weird. I have these, which I haven't had time to figure out what they are. Um, these are... It's not not coffee everywhere. So let's get the camo up on screen first. So they are what yeah. I think is Belgian. Yeah. Could Just be. eyeballing it. Um, they're, what's really strange is they popped up on this 
uh, non on Instagram on this guy I follow. He's not really a specialist in military. He's just sort of a, a generalist vintage dealer who shows at Silver Lake and in LA all the time. Um, and I saw those like, those are cool. How much? And they were like, I don't know, 60 bucks. Maybe I overpaid, maybe underpaid, but they resonated quite right. a bit because the camo is really pretty. Yeah. And buttons on, like, check this out. You're talking, it has mismatched suspender buttons. Uh, yeah, I love that. And then this is actually, is this on a, no, it's not an HBT. I have to find this repair that I was just touching. They've got a couple field repairs on them that are just wonderful. Beautiful. Um, ah, here it is. Look at this great little gash, like, I don't know if you can oh, see yeah. that where it's been dark. So we're looking at dark. just a gash that's been um, zigzag kind of repaired. Is that machine or hand? Um, that's machine darned with some backing. I think all the repairs on this pair are machine done. There's, somebody's run over the sides. These were blown out on the side seams at least once. Those have been run over with a home, what looks like a home sewing machine. And then there's a really great, uh, describe this, another set of darning. Yeah, another darn. It's been, this time, I mean, the other one should have been done this way, but this one's been um, done, like, basically, someone's run a machine, a square around the gash, and then done zigzags yep. to darn the, um, the gash. There's probably it's, a backing on that, too. Yeah, the backing is self so they must have cut from somewhere else in the garment that i can't find maybe they cut a pocket off Sneaky. and this is an old repair because i just tugged on it and it just the some of the self that they use just uh, sorry some of the fabric from the pants that were used to make the patch that's what self is just crumbled when i touched it oh wow uh, it, so what, does that mean they're are they cotton pants or i think they're 100 percent cotton i saw a year on these when I was digging around in them. Ladies and gentlemen, they are so salty that the that the fabric crumbled. That's 1958. Oh, 1958. I believe the Okay, I found a tag I hadn't seen on these yet. I'm so I'm so terrible. I haven't really dug in these pants very much. I just I got them and I just wore them a lot. Nice. <laughs> um, and like your monkey pants, I put them on. Like I pulled the measurements from the seller and I was like, okay, they'll probably fit. They're perfect, like waist, rise, they're the inseam. I always have trouble with inseams because I'm so tall. The inseam lands exactly like a half inch below my ankle bone. Beautiful. So they're like perfect. Beautiful. Like if I was going to knock out a pair of fatigues, I would use these. That's the beauty about like it's that's the beauty about when you find a beautiful piece of treasure that's like not ridiculously priced is that your expectations are you know at a nice low level so anything else is a win which is part of the fun of digging i forgot to tell you actually that on my monkey pants there's also a beautiful kind of unique detail that that someone has like painted their house or something in these pants and there's like dark green paint splatter oh, that's wonderful. all over all over the front but really faded paint splatter so it just looks yeah it's stunning it makes the whole it gives depth to the whole 
to the pant. And um, yeah, that's another reason why they're very beautiful. Um, let's talk about, you know, since we're on the subject of digging, let's talk about um, our favorite spots to find military pieces or any vintage but we're talking about military pieces let's stick to let's stick to that so when i'm looking for really specific but more modern pieces um if you know what you're looking for i find ebay is actually not terrible if you're hyper specific and patient because you'll often find deals because people don't know what they're selling so if you can id a camo or a year by looking at something you can make out pretty well there the other spot i found recently is etsy well actually i've been using that for a couple years i think that's where i got my swedish camo parka that's also sitting next to me so this guy came off of i'm just going to show the camo because it's just this is not that rare of a piece um i don't know if you can really see that more of a geometric camo yeah um you know, when I say geometric, I mean very crisp, straight lines, crisp shapes. Um, yeah, this is not that old. This is, modern. yeah, um, this is from 1997. So it's not particularly rare or old. The thing about it is that it is hard to find one in my size. Because mm. I'm the equivalent for, for these finding the XL-ish size was very challenging. And Etsy came through, and I don't think I paid more than 60 bucks for it, probably. Nice. Because the big ones I was finding were all like three, 400 Yeah. And it's like, no, I'll wait. That's pricey, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I've been – I don't know if it, if it works that way for you um, in the U.S., but – for me here in Thailand, Facebook Marketplace is what I'm looking at all day, every day. It's really like my number one. I'm probably addicted to it, but um, it just works so well. A lot of people use it here. Um, I know when I was living in France, there's a website called Le Bon Coin, which was like a Craigslist for France. Mm-hmm. Um, but in France, they have such a good culture of, of you know, like of recycling or, or reusing or, or reselling um, that people really use it. All kinds of people use it. Um, and in, in France, they have such a good flea market culture, as, as, does in the, as do you in the U.S. But what I was really impressed with in France was that they have a, the, a centralized website that tells you every single weekend from spring to, to autumn, uh, which is the flea market season. Um, it tells you where there's a flea market, what kind of goods, how many sellers, um, the exact location. It's all in this one centralized website that's probably organized by, I don't know, some government body because every single township um, basically shares their information with this. Um, I wish there was more stuff like this. It seems so organized, so smart, and such a sustainable way to to just pass objects on. Um, I don't know if you have something like that in the U.S. No. But you definitely don't have that. Um, 
in in Thailand. But my I, favorite I think, places. Oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, I think there are some locally run lists of fleas, but I don't think there's a centralized every flea, every antique market. It's all very um, opaque, and you either know or you don't know. Yeah, doesn't it blow your mind that the French like they've just got that system? I'm sure the Japanese do too. The French and the Japanese, they know something. Um, <laughs> uh, but my favorite places, I'm going to list some, some vintage stores here because I think, you know, like, although I do love going to fleas every single weekend, um, and looking at Facebook marketplace, we can't do eBay here because we have a lot of restrictions with, um, shipping into Thailand. A lot of, we have, we are, anyway, there's, that's a whole nother kettle of fish, but, um, yeah, my probably my favorite vintage store for uh, denim and military gear in Japan is a store that you sent me um, for setting up this talk is Bebejin. Um, mm, absolutely, definitely, just probably one, definitely one of the world's top top stores for that. Um, there's also Jantiques, the my favorite. Um, vintage store in the whole wide world. Such a beautiful, st- beautiful store. Um, I have a lot of memories going there. You know, back when I used to, um, you know, go to Japan every season for for my market for for wholesale. You know, I used to go with Nige. Um, our office used to be in Nakameguro, and we used to walk down the road to Jantiques. And we probably spend more time vintage shopping than actually working or anything, but they are good memories. Do you have any yeah. favorites, um, Jeremy? You just named, so Berbergen for sure. Jantiques I have a special affinity for because when we, up until we couldn't travel anymore, there's a hotel slash Airbnb on the same street as Jantiques. Like mm-hmm. not even a block away. And that's where we would stay um, almost every time. And so I've been in and out there. I would try to always make it in there. And the thing we should talk about Jantiques is it's one of those places where they don't just have a thing. You walk in there and if there's a thing, they have a size run. It's like, oh, you want a 19... 19- 62 Levi's. Okay, well, here is here is a stack of them dead stock, and here's a stack of them. Um, <clears throat> there's a stack of them brand or uh, worn in, or yeah. like the stack of Dickies was tall as me. Yeah. The the other spots I want to call out. There's a small vintage store called Snow Plant out in Oxaxa. And it's run by the folks who also do North No Name. It's tiny, but they sell weird shit. You know, they don't have what they have things like, um, you know, more hot rod tees, uh, garage jackets. It's much more oddball. You can see it on their Instagram. Yeah. And then up in Sendai, True Vintage, they have, it's much tighter than. Um, Jantiques or Berbergine and things move very quickly but if you watch their Instagram you can find relatively good deals on 
all kind, pretty much any kind of vintage. You know, he prices things well to get them in, get them out. I mean, and that's then, that's like what people. I mean, with it doesn't matter if you have a vintage clothing business or or you're making new clothes. Is like right now with COVID, everyone has to um, be online to survive. But the thing about vintage is that every single piece is unique. Doesn't matter if you have the same size of two things; they're they're going to have completely different characters. Um, and that I have huge respect for, you know, all the vintage dealers that are navigating this right now. The, Sorry, the last spot, no, no, it's fine. The last spot in Japan is in Nagoya, and the if the name is escaping me. I'll, I'll post it in the comments when this goes live, but my friends at Oyofukuten take us there frequently. I think it might be Mitsura is the name, but they have things going back towards turn of the, turn of the 19th century. They've got, okay. They're a little bit more older focused, but again, they tend to have small runs of things too. So they won't just have a thing. They'll have several of it, which is fascinating. So if you want to see a bunch of things in context. Um, speaking of turn of the century, Jeff, Japan. Um, I want to shout out uh, Mind Benders and Classics. I'm not sure if you've ever been to that. They're mm -hmm. on like the top floor of a very small little building in Ginza, um, and they have absolutely stunning, um, yeah, early like turn of the century kind of French, you know, like European workwear, but really special pieces as well. Um, yeah, shout out to them. Also, speaking of French, um, I'm not sure if you've been to Brut Clothing, Brut in Paris. Um, that's Paul, run by Paul and Clément. Shout out to you guys. Um, they really have stunning pieces. They also have a showroom called Brut Archives um, that many designers um, rent from. Um, with their showroom, a lot of the pieces are not for sale. They're very, very unique, special pieces, and but they do offer them um, for rent for a lot of designers. Um, so for, for folks in France, yeah, that's really, for me, one of the best in France. And for me... And they have a great Instagram. They do. They do. They, they work so hard. When I was talking about, you know, on using going online shooting all their pieces i'm i'm thinking of them because like the two of them work so hard they shoot you know a ton of pieces and there's so much detail on all of their shots it's really archival um and they're just yeah they're just churning it out like good for them shout out to them and i think we mentioned this last podcast but i'm going to mention it again is fraggedy threads in um in la and new york um jamie at raggedy threads she just runs such a stunning um mm -hmm. space full of more more workwear more americana but she just she does still pick up some very interesting mil military pieces as well but when we're talking about yeah. uniforms i want to talk about like why we're drawn to uniforms um I'm thinking about the fact that the uniforms I'm drawn to are not necessarily only military uniforms. They're, they might be work workwear. Um, they might be even like school uniforms. It's like 
for me, the idea, and I was thinking about this a lot this week, is the idea of organizing, is it the the idea of bringing order into something, you know, into our like very chaotic world. I'm going to talk about order and chaos again, but um, it's something that I'm obsessed with, and I think you know it needs to be explored more and more. Is the idea of like for me a uniform makes it's like compartmentalizing the chaos the the randomness of gear that we're surrounded mm. by and i think that's something that subconsciously my eye is drawn to i'm not sure what it is for you or if you've thought about this idea a little bit i do i do think about it quite a bit and you know looking at all the different you know thinking about all the different ways that uniform is deployed and then even people creating uniforms for their tribes you know you go to new york it's the brooks brothers guys on wall street you go to san francisco it's the zip front american well these days i don't know what the basic hoodie is but you know it's the zip front black hoodie you know all birds and skinny jeans of the tech guys everywhere every tribe if they don't have a uniform pushed on them by their governing body like a military or a school they'll just make one up on their own totally i didn't even think about that tribal that like group identity that happens with uniforms but that's kind of how we find community as well is is by just you know that's what that's what clothing is all about is just telling the world like what your values are what your what your passions are what your values are um yeah which tribe you're from i guess which tribe you're not from yes too more so for me more so i'm not sure but um yeah i think there's something fascinating to talk about this idea of like using I mean uniforms this is I mean it's going to be unique for everyone but for but we can only talk for ourselves here um, let me ask you yeah what it was about the uniform that attract that you're attracted to i think in terms of uniforms it's really what i think everyone working in menswear eventually gets pushed into it because every piece that you touch and everything that you see now almost all of it either started out you know for the most part it's military that has been adapted over time you know the m65 if you want to sling one of those over here that would be wonderful um Shout out to 7am beers. Um, nice. The, you know, like the M65 field jacket just keeps having a moment over and over again as each successive generation of designers uh, discovers it all over again. So, you know, it's very, that's a very cyclical piece. I remember it was 10-ish, maybe 12 years ago, everybody had an M65 of their own, every designer which in some ways is unnecessary because there is the 
M65, and there are plenty. But at the same time, you have to allow for changes in silhouette and even you know personal preferences. Not everyone wants to wear a field jacket that still weighs several pounds, even oh, yeah. in its nylon cotton format. And then kind of moving sideways from there, it's like the fundamental piece of men's apparel, the blazer, is just that's an old military uniform. Yeah. You know, it's been chopped chopped and screwed over time in you know, through trad and ivy, you know, it grew Absolutely. big shoulders in the eighties and you know, it's come back to a reasonable size again, but it's just you know, it's just a military uniform piece at the yeah. end of the day. But it's a wonderful, versatile piece. Yeah, I mean, I mean, with clothing, I feel like we're not inventing the wheel when we make new clothes, but we are kind of pulling things into a new context or a context that we predict, like a, a either we're reflecting the uh, the cultural values of where we are right now, or we're kind of jumping a little bit ahead and predicting what culture may be, may, may morph into um, in the short, not so far off um, future. But, or, or, yeah, I feel like, you know, I want to ask, like, is, are these things kind of just, to me, it's like, when you when you cross something so traditional like a blazer and you cross it with a completely new different idea like i don't know like reggae music or like i'm just thinking off the top of my head and that cross pollination happens sometimes you hit something really new and that's what to me that's what's exciting about clothing and that's exciting about mm-hmm. design clothing art whatever but it's also the intention behind these choices as well and the value systems that the designer or artist or whatever is base, you know, base making their, their pieces upon. Um, yeah, there's so much that goes into clothing design. But let's talk about outerwear right now because... Outerwear is kind of having a moment again, um, which is, is pretty fun. I feel like that's a real reflection of where we are as well, um, you know, with COVID. You know, this was kind of happening before COVID, but it really accelerated, um, you know, over the past year, especially here in Thailand. I can only speak for Thailand because I've been here the whole time. Um, but people are really going outdoors. People are really like exploring our country um because they can't travel overseas and you know they're just taking the opportunity and we're lucky enough here that the government is actually you know that we had an in the government had an incentive um mid last year where we were able to travel um you know use our flights and and accommodation and have um, the government subsidize those things by 50%, which was so cool. Wow. Yeah, half price, that's very half cool. price adventures in Thailand um, because the tourism. That's, that's a whole new business you could start. Hell yeah. Huh. 
Ponytails Half, half Price Adventures. <laughs> Ponytails Half Price Adventures. I love all these business ideas. Um, but yeah, outerwear is popping off here in Thailand. Um, it is here to give me one second go. while you've got a while you've got your next beer. I need to get my next coffee. Okay, just pausing. Coffee has been topped up. Nice. Yeah, I mean, I think we've anyone who's worked been working in the industry for a while has seen this coming. You know, even I remember being taken to a vintage store. Well, not vintage, but I guess vintage. I don't know. I went to a store in Tokyo with Michia from Red, who was then with Red Wing, and it was uh, Gore-Tex and early North Face and stuff like that, like very focused on like the mountain, early mountain parka era of North Face. And you look at brands like, you know, Snow Peak went into apparel probably four years, five years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. And, and Wander has been going off for six, seven, who knows how many years. And so the trend's been building in Japan. Yeah. It just took some time. I think it just took the intersection of that trend growing with the need to actually go outside to really yeah, make totally. it this spike in what's referred to, at least in the U.S., as Gorpcore. Yeah, Gorpcore. All these yeah. all these websites and blogs and Instagrams that are just full of outdoor porn. Not literally, yep. but just, you know what I mean, guys. There's a lot of that. And, like, it's really, you know... You know, the funny thing, though, is most of the people that scroll through these, like, these blogs, they don't really go outside. <laughs> they just, like, scroll through them. A lot of people I know do that anyway, but everyone yeah, it's it, their own. It is wild. It's like to see the visual language of the 90s, which is, you know, kind of the blobby light hikers and then, you know, Cargo cargo pants. Yeah, the color, the purples and pinks and strange yellows all from the 90s coming back again. Oh, yeah. And see, Do you know why? It's probably because, like, people who are in, like, positions, like, to make those calls in bigger company are probably round about my age, maybe a little older, but round about my generation. And we grew up with, these things like body glove like you know like mm-hmm. real kind of that real like i've got a few pe- let me just show you a few pieces because i really oh, i've yeah. got a great haul this weekend so you've seen these shirts because i put them on instagram but here we've got some really great 90s um fish board shorts the back says creeks the back says creeks there um you know they're just basic they feel like nylon a nylon cotton canvas printed with like these crazy fish and um gradient yellow orange pink and green all together in this beautiful gradient um and yeah go ahead are those a 34? Those might be mine. <laughs> uh, someone's cut off the tag. I think they're a little I had something very similar in the 90s because that 
I don't know if it was the original. It was most likely because I lived in the Midwest. It was probably just something that had reverberated, been ripped off, and then printed in the millions and sold at oh, like yeah. Kohl's or something. Kohl's is where... American discount. Oh, we had we had Kohl's in Australia. I have. They're probably not the same company, but it's a targetish. And okay, we have, I have this T-shirt that you would think is a body glove T-shirt, right? Because of the print and stuff, but. This brand is dear to my heart and for anyone who's like in their 30s and grew up in Thailand, you'll get what I mean. This brand is called No Problem. It's probably like the local Thai ripoff of Body Glove. Um, no, you know what? It is, it, it is its own thing in its own right and it's got this really crazy, very like early 90s, early to mid 90s, like crazy pink and orange it's, print it says then now forever on the back and the front that looks that looks to me like somebody took the idea of no fear and the idea of body yes. glove and just rammed them into the same garment that's what and made its own beautiful own thing and beautiful. I, mean, I think as time collapses in our rear views um you know a lot of these bootlegs and off brands are just as cool as the originals, oh, if not hell cooler. Yeah. Cause it's some designer somewhere saying, Well, I like this about that and I like this other aspect of it. Why don't I make them into a, a single brand, yeah. a single image? And, and even if it's just Yeah, go, go ahead. for it. Well, oh. I was gonna say on that point just quickly, every culture does that in its own special way as well. Okay, you take the Japanese, they're really great at taking existing things and engineering them so that they're even better and then you take the ties for example and they really, they do it in a different way they're really good at like mixing and matching different aspects of different completely different things and and just just creating new stuff from that um so oh, it's absolutely. like different ways but as you, what were you about to say I can't remember. Let Sorry. me have to rerun. Um, the I, I don't like. I think you know the validity of a garment from a past era, whether it was a bootleg or real, tends to shift over time. Yeah. And if you're looking, you know, it's like saying that your Thai body glove is a knockoff is almost. It would be like saying like an in-country party suit made in Vietnam, you know, the camouflage blazers that were made by local tailors. Is this where you pull out a party suit? Um, it's not a party suit, but it is a... It's not a party suit, but it's a Viet Cong... Um, Viet Cong... That's what am wild, I going to yeah. call this? This is going to be called a blouse, like a shirt, a field shirt kind of thing and um bloomers so this is like a real Viet Cong um piece the camo the camo looks kind of almost stenciled on um, yeah and then there are there are little tabs at the on the shirt it's on the arms on the sleeves and on these bloomers it's on the legs they cinch in. You can actually pull the tabs. I'm going to demonstrate. You can pull the tabs 
and they cinch in so that it really become like these balloon-like bloomers. I'm not sure what the function was for that, but it's very mm. interesting. One thing I Are found Are those the out, originals? Um, you know what? I don't... So I bought them in a vintage store in um, Saigon, now called Ho Chi Minh City. Um, they could be beautifully done knockoffs or they could be the originals. But it's really hard to, to tell what when you... purpose that, yeah. that leg cinch would have. And also you have the same on the arms. One thing that I was that was interesting that I found out today from reading a lot about you know the war, the Vietnam War, um, especially from this Thai interview, the Thai soldiers interview today, was that he he said that the Viet Cong wore flip flops not because they were poor or any you know, but was it was actually because so that they could feel the landmines. If they stepped on one, like they could feel. Well, that's it. terrifying. Yeah, no, I mean the war was absolutely terrifying. You know, reading about the booby traps that were set. You know, so, and just it was a really horrific war, like absolutely horrific war. And even though, even if you have a weak stomach, I think every everyone should read about the horrors of all wars. Well, so I think these things don't get yeah. forgotten about. I think for war movies, if you really want um, Spike Lee's The Five Bloods from last yes. year, I think Excellent. that really encapsulated, even though it was mostly contemporaneous, um, you know, with only a few flashbacks, I think that really shows the sheer terror of dealing with minds because you don't know, you know, I know it's just that like. scene that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely was, terrifying but just such was, a reality and still a yeah. reality today in laos laos is is littered with mines left over still today lit absolutely littered you know a lot of people don't know like i did a, a collection about it um this winter but a lot of people don't know that, you know, there was a war being fought in Laos at the same time um, that was maybe even more horrific than the Vietnam War. But, you know, it was swept under the rug. It was called a secret war and declassified in 2018 by the CIA. Um, you know, yeah, war is, war is like... I don't know. I sometimes I wonder if it's human nature, um, if, if it's inevitable. But there's one thing that I know is that we can't sweep this under the rug. We, you know, a lot of people on the internet, you know, say, you know, how, you know, that these subjects are so sensitive. There are people, there are veterans that are still living and um, who who can be affected by. Um, you know, seeing war, seeing the wars that they fought, you know, posted on the internet. But I don't know. I have a different perspective. I think that culture can forget about things very quickly and history can repeat itself 
very, very. Oh, oh absolutely. And, and we, yeah, we see it again. This. Yeah. Just again and again. And, you know, just like the endless proxy wars that were fought at the tail end of uh, World War II. It's just insanity. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, guys. I mean, it's heavy, but I feel like we as a culture tend to avoid difficult feelings as well that actually need to be kind of acknowledged head on and that kind of that's where i come from but um to pull to pull this back around to where we started our whole conversation a week ago you know it's something we get asked as a store is why do you sell you know these remnants of violence right uniforms camo and my take on it is freeing these really well-designed garments and these wonderful patterns, you know, camo is so aesthetically pleasing, freeing them from the context and putting them into peacetime apparel is a very powerful move. The same way, you know, you look at surplus being worn by hippies and anti-war activists in the sixties, freeing it from con freeing it from the context of violence and saying, no, this is a perfectly valid garment. It can be worn, you know, one of my M65s is heavily customized. It's, you know, reclaim the shit, make it peacetime. Yeah. It's, yeah, totally. I love that idea of freeing something from from its kind of shackles. Um, but acknowledging where it came from at the same time. Making new meanings. From yeah. a bunch of old things. Because if we extracted everything from apparel that was generated from military use, we'd all be running around in. Um, hmm. <laughs> we'd, be, <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be. Yeah, I mean, do you, I just had a thought. Okay, so for example, a great example of this would be um, I did a collection. Uh, for spring summer 22 called tech type four it was based on all the research and like all the technology that was developed during the cold war for like for you know the submarine technology a lot of spy technology um, sonar for mapping the ocean and that was all used for a an absolute boom of scientific research straight after the cold war um, we mapped the ocean we found the deepest point of the ocean the mariana trench we we had scientists living under the ocean for for weeks at a time doing research thanks to the technology that we built so that you know like it's a lot of it's almost like when you 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 have a beautiful vase and one day you it breaks and it's a, a disaster. But actually, when you when you glue all the pieces together, and that vase is kind of sitting in your living room, and one day the sun shines at that perfect spot where it shines <laughs> light through the cracks, and it makes that vase just absolutely stunning. Um, it's like that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's life. That's 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 war and that's 
the goodness that can come out of war too, the resilience and beautiful sunshine that comes from it too. Well, on that well said. Note, Jeremy, Jeremy, do you have any last thoughts on uniforms and why, why oh, the hell people there's... like you and I <laughs> like uniforms? We don't have another 10 hours to discuss. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm running out of beer too. I'm on my last bit of coffee. I think I would encourage everyone to just go and read and research and I'll dangle this out there, which is everyone should go read about the history of tweeds and plaids on their own. Yeah. That's let's just that's the so homework. We should save that for another podcast. But just just on a side note, um, Jeremy pointed me out to the fact that actually tweeds and plaids are like super early um, camos, which blows my mind. Very abstract thinking for the early clans people of the British Isles and and Scotland and whoever the hell wore camo and I mean, wore tartan and tweeds <laughs> back then. Um, super abstract. It's like a Mondrian camo, um, but fascinating. Yeah, just limited by technology, I guess, but we'll just stop there before we dive into another rat hole and this goes on for more hours. Well, Jeremy, thank um, you so much. And you're out of beers. I'm, yes, I'm, thank you too, Lauren. I'm on the way. But, right. um, yeah, it's been really great as usual, guys. Um, please check out Standard and Strange in Oakland. Beautiful, beautiful pieces there and, you know, run by good humans, good humans out there. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah, any, Wonderful. really, seriously. I mean, everything I say, I never say anything I don't mean. Don't quote me on that, but I really mean that. Thanks, Jeremy. Right. Bye, Thanks, everybody. Lauren. Have a good night. Bye, everyone.